0: I first really started to work with accessibility standards. Uh, my in- initial reaction to it, which I've since learned is not so uncommon, is like, I don't have time for this. You know, like I have to do all these mockups, I have all I have this huge list of things that I need to change in the code base. I have so much work to do. Uh, why would I try and add this extra bit of work into my workflow? Uh, to serve to a small demographic. Mm -hmm. Is it worth it? Is it worth the time and energy to do it? Hey,
1: and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, I'm a growth engineer
2: at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today we're talking about a really critical topic in design and actually in business strategy that uh, is relatively under-discussed, but there's actually a lot of good information out there on it if you look for it. And that topic is accessibility. We kind of want to discuss like, what, what is accessibility? Why is it important to businesses? And how can you easily and thoughtfully incorporate this stuff into your designs? What's the case for that,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that why is it important to businesses part is really key, mm-hmm. you know? And like, how do you fit into your workflow? Because I'm thinking back to a year ago or so, when I first really started to work with accessibility standards, uh, my in- initial reaction to it, which I have since learned is not so uncommon, is like, I don't have time for this. You know, like I have to do all these mockups. I have, all, I have this huge list of things that I need to change in the code base. I have so much work to do. Uh, why would I try and add this extra bit of work into my workflow uh, to serve to a small demographic? Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? Is it worth the time and energy to do it? And what I've since learned is like, absolutely. It's right. totally worth it. And And in fact, uh, like, everything that you do, if you're thinking about accessibility right from the start, is going to inherently be better, and we'll talk about that a little bit later.
2: Yeah. There is a lot of co- compounding effects from it, right? Mm-hmm. But because it's something that's so under-discussed, we do see a lot of that sort of similar pattern, like what you were talking about there, especially with business leaders when they're building their product roadmaps. It's like, gosh, is that something that we can really even afford to pay attention to right now? Like. We gotta hire you know a designer that is like trained in accessibility standards and then they're gonna spend our company's hours actually building accessibility. How big is that audience? You know, like can can we cater to that audience right now, political correctness aside, you know, can we cater can we in our sort of bootstrap startup zone or whatever afford to cater to that audience right now? Maybe that's something that instead we just do later on down the line. Yeah, I
1: think that also sometimes Uh, people think that the word accessibility is tied to a very complicated set of things that you have to do, like just a general misunderstanding of what types of work you have to do in order to cater to this concept of accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it tends to drop out of the priorities, especially if people on very small teams who are very visionary. Accessibility is not part of their vision. And it's also not understood and therefore it doesn't get the attention that it deserves.
2: Yeah. It's not the sexiest topic in the world, right. but it's an important one. But it right? should be. It should be. Yeah. And it can't There's be. There's no reason it can't be. But let's think about that, right? So this, this idea that we, you know, how big is the access the, the disabled audience that we should be catering to? How can I justify that? And I think that the best way to make a case from a business standpoint for accessibility is to dive into the data, right. and there's no shortage of it. So to begin, we know that over 19% of the U.S. population is disabled. And these are real. These are real disabilities that actually affect people's usage of digital products. This is not like you know somebody got hit by a car and lost their legs or or something right. like that, and it has nothing to do with the yeah. digital product that, that you're going to be. Building. And actually,
1: uh, what's great about um, trying to like summarize all of this, right, mm-hmm. is that there's really only four areas, f- simple to understand areas that concern web, it's um, being able to see, being able to hear, being able to use, and being able to understand, and those are like the four major pieces, you know, seeing mm-hmm. you know, visual problems, near blindness or blindness, uh, hearing audio, being able to, you know, hear a video or hear a podcast, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Use like people who have uh, problems with motor control or can't use a mouse and keyboard well, or any of the interfaces that we use on a regular basis, um, and understand people with um, mental disabilities or uh, people with um, you know other can't understand certain like it's not languages, but like have trouble understanding certain things, maybe dyslexia or Mm -hmm. like you know other things like that. Um, And that's really it. And anything that you can imagine that falls into those categories is concerned. Uh, with a web product.
2: Yep. And the good news is that we can actually take that 19% of the disabled U.S. population and we can break it out by those very categories that you just mentioned. Exactly. So 8.2% of that 19% have difficulty lifting or grasping. So this could, for example, impact their use of a mouse or a keyboard, especially if you're involved in tangible product design. This is a really important demographic to pay attention to. 6.3% have a cognitive, mental, or emotional impairment. Um, So this is a little bit more related to what Jeff was mentioning around understanding, how how they actually interpret the design. Yeah, exactly. 3.3% 3.3% have a vision impairment, so these people may rely on a screen magnifier or a screen reader, or maybe they have a form of color blindness. 3.1% have a hearing impairment, so they may rely on transcripts or captions for audio and video media. So that's kind of if you take that 19% uh, and you 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 just divide it out by 8.2, 6.3, 3.3, and 3.1, you can see where those uh where those buckets fall
0: right and but an, then, an important note on there is also like that 19 percent of people who are disabled those also might be people that need your product more than the rest of the population mm-hmm. right if you're blind, like you're not every pamphlet that's going to be printed is going to have braille on it mm-hmm. whereas if the web is accessible and they can find all that information on there a whole new realm is opened up yeah to them. yeah so these can be your power users
2: Mm-hmm. So we know that this population is large and that it exists. Mm-hmm. right? But there's always this follow-up question that I get when, whenever I'm advocating for accessibility. And it's generally along the lines of, yeah, that population is large and they're real, but how many of them would actually access the web? Right. How many of them would actually use my product? And what it comes down to is about no, 50.
1: None if you're not making it accessible for them.
2: <laughs> that is that is true, yeah. You're completely cutting out all of them right. if you don't make any effort. But let's say that you do. Mm-hmm. How many of them are you going to pick up? Right. 54% of adults living with a disability in the United States go online. Right. So you can take that 19% of the population and roughly cut it in half and say, OK, if I don't build accessibility into my product, I am just going to cut out 10% of the US population entirely. Right. Right? That would be exactly. like this sort of weirdly logical conclusion. Uh, and this, this information was, was actually pulled by uh, Princeton uh, Survey Research Associates International back in 2011. So we actually know that that number has since gone up dramatically because it, that data is five years old. Um, So that's what we're talking about there is somewhere around 60 million people Mm -hmm. just in the United States that are living with disabilities that actually are directly impacted uh, by the digital products that we create. And we've done a lot in order to make sure that we properly design for them. For example, we have uh, in the U.S. Law, we have Section 508 for government entities, which dictates that certain accessibility standards have to be met in any government website. And then, of course, they recommend that all websites adhere to those things. A lot of smart businesses follow suit. They're actually updating that legislation now. But an interesting side to this that a lot of people don't think about when they actually, until they actually get into the math behind accessibility is if you were to compare an accessibility strategy in uh, a large organization with an internationalization strategy in a large organization you would actually see in the smartest organizations similar levels of priority right and the reason for that is because although 19 percent of the u.s population is disabled and globally speaking that's a relatively low percentage. So the point being that in developing nations, you obviously have much higher percentages of the population living with disabilities. Uh, Westernized nations in the United States specifically have very high uh, internet access rates. Right. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that uh, 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 an overwhelming portion of our population can access the internet. And in developing nations, That's not necessarily the case, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if we were to take the US disabled population and consider them a population of their own, let's say that we break this out by just deaf and hard of hearing individuals. They are now their own country. Just the people from the United States that are deaf and hard of hearing, they are their own country. And then we take the people from the United States that are blind and low vision, and they are their own country. And then we weigh that by internet accessing population. What we would find is that the deaf and hard of hearing country in and of itself, just the people from the United States with that disability in their own country, their internet accessing population is larger than that of Spain, Canada, Italy, Mexico. It's approaching the size of South Korea. It's actually around a percentage point off. It's approaching France, it's approaching Germany, Brazil,
1: yeah. right? So objectively, what you're saying is that these populations are very large,
2: mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah, and then we do the same thing with that separate country of blind and low vision, and we actually see the same exact result. Right. Mm-hmm. Where if, so what the, the best way to think about this is if your business's strategy is to, if your goal, I should say, is to access a larger Population, and get more people to buy your product. Right. Then your strategy, if you really look at the amount of people, you start weighing populations by who's actually accessing the internet. You'll realize that your your growth strategy should absolutely implement accessibility into it because that population, just in the United States, this is we're not talking about, we're not talking about you know Australia, uh, the United Kingdom. Canada, whatever, other large westernized countries with similarly sized disabled populations, you take just the United States, and we're talking populations that are larger than all of the internet accessing population in Spain, mm-hmm. right?
0: And so, and think of this from a competitive advantage standpoint. Yeah. Also, not only just like the size of the population, but imagine that you, you, you're in a, a marketplace where there's four apps, mm-hmm. and you're the only one that's accessible. Mm-hmm. Guess what the entire, ex, uh, uh, disabled population is going to use, they're going to use your app because they literally can't use any of the others. Yeah. This also plays into
1: globalization nicely, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you are accessible in one country, then you don't have to be double accessible in another country. You just are, period, Mm -hmm. accessible. So suddenly, the earlier you do that, the less you have to worry about it when you start spreading, right? You basically are able to, you know, as you say, develop for other languages. You don't have to worry about the accessibility piece. You're you're able to give your uh, products to, I suppose, close to 100% of the population. You've covered all of your ground, mm-hmm. give or take. I'm sure there's things I'm not thinking of. But this this is huge, right? Like this is like, if you're not doing that, you're walking into a, a new country or a, a new region, and you know you're cut in half immediately. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is, from Matt's point international economies are crowded accessible economies are not crowded right and furthermore when you actually look at scaling the your growth scaling into additional international markets presents a wide array of challenges for each additional market that you that you grow into mm-hmm. accessibility standards are universal mm-hmm. it's not like somebody who has a hard of hearing in china is going to require different, drastically different accessibility right. standards than somebody in the United States.
0: Yep. And then, if you're still not convinced, you're <laughs> still not convinced by all the data we just put at, that we just threw at you. Also consider this: if you're following accessibility standards, what you create and what you design is going to inherently be better and be more usable for the rest of the population who is not disabled.
2: Yeah. Yep. So this is this is a really uh, Whenever a designer is starting to work with accessibility, this is like a eureka moment for them, right? Where they realize, oh, this thing that I thought was a little bit of a pain in the ass at first, like all of these standards that I had to follow, actually what they fall into is just good design practices. Mm-hmm. So you you think about, like we're, we're going to go through a bunch of different practices that you can use to better implement accessibility into your designs. And they're actually really easy and straightforward. And what you're going to find is that a lot of them overlap with good practices for just good design, good uh, code development, good SEO, whatever it may be. So for example, using a lot of white space so that people who have uh, difficult, difficulty seeing things correctly, can parse different data, and also so that uh, screen readers can parse it using semantic code, all of these different things. They, they actually play into just good design and development strategies. Mm-hmm. And if you focus on improving accessibility, as Matt mentioned, you'll see that you don't just improve the experience for your disabled audience, you improve the experience for your entire audience. Right.
1: There's a, so along the same lines um, in terms of specifics, right? Uh, something else that uh, I forgot about, but it plays into both accessibility and SEO is links out of context. So anytime you add an anchor tag around something, you know, uh, you've got a link to another page instead of doing something like more. Or click here, which is the word that's highlighted by the link. Writing an actual half a sentence, or mm-hmm. even the title of the new piece of content. So SEO plays like that plays a big role. Uh, uh, search engines tend to look at that and give heavy weight to what that that internal text is. And then screen readers, a lot of times, especially if they're just trying to navigate, will read the links out, and then you choose one and then move on. Mm-hmm. But if they're all saying more here, this that, that's not particularly mm-hmm. useful for anybody, right?
2: Yeah. So. Let's dive into the tips then, okay. like, because that's basically what that, that is. It's that's like, also a
0: good analogy for Semantic HTML, right. what you just said there. which And the whole idea behind Semantic HTML, if you are to sum it up, is really that you're just describing things the way that they're supposed to be described. Right. Right? So if you have a link that's linking to a page, name the text in there like describing what that link is. Mm-hmm. And you're all set. It's the same thing with Semantic HTML. If you have a, a header, like some big thing of text that's like the title of this blog post, Uh, use the semantic element that was meant for it. Don't put it in a span tag because then anyone that is parsing that page expecting your page to look like the rest of the web and it's not, well they're not going to know what to do with it.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's your first tip. Making sure that you're using semantic HTML and that when you build links, uh, internal links for that matter, that they're properly uh, named so that there's actual context around where the link is going to lead to. Those are two really high level uh, practices that, that go into accessibility. We'll go through a bunch more. Um, a few that, that I like to cover just right off the bat is that uh, for designers, a good practice in general, but one that really plays into accessibility a lot, is starting out by designing in monochrome. So when uh, I like
0: that one. Mm-hmm.
2: When when you're in the wireframing phase, this is something that's very easy to do. This is actually uh, an unknown and and unnoticed benefit of wireframing is that it just sort of forces you to design in monochrome and actually create a strong visual hierarchy and and create something that uh, a human eye and a computer can parse easily. Now,
1: is this for specifically colorblind people, or does this cover a wider spot? No,
2: this is, so when we think about it from an accessibility standpoint, the greatest benefit is going to be to colorblindness. But this kind of goes back again to that thing that I was mentioning earlier, where it's an accessibility practice, but it's also just a good design practice. Right, yeah. Um, When you do start to introduce color into your design, Use colors with high contrast. So, especially when you're thinking about developing your color palette and your style guide, having colors with relative brightness to each other, the the swatches that you select, is really important. And this is especially going to be effective for people, again, with color color blindness, like protanopia, deuteranopia. Um, these are like the two most common forms uh, of color blindness, and having uh, you can even find like with you know red-green colorblindness, for example, if you have really, really high brightness contrast between the two, it's still something that in certain situations uh, people can, can parse.
0: And to tie back to the point of how this is better for everyone, not just colorblind people, like if you have good, strong color hierarchy and you have good contrast, like imagine you're just like a little bit farther, I just wheel back a little bit, a little bit farther <laughs> away from your screen. Like, you should still be able to determine what the different elements on the right. screen are.
2: Yeah.
1: This reminds me, I have a friend who is red-green colorblind, and mm-hmm. uh, this is a little bit tangential to uh, web, but it's still, um, so he's a, he's a gamer, like, he loves playing video games, but the problem with red-green colorblindness is let's imagine that you're playing a game where it's uh, like a first-person shooter out in the wilderness everything is gray mm-hmm. right and then the targeting receptacles are red for your enemies so it's gray on gray and he has a real hard time navigating those games mm. and it's like it's little things like that right like I'll sit next to him and just point things out and he's like I didn't see that at all and it's like mm. anywhere else that you go especially um, like on the web uh, that that's kind of what happens with colorblindness is it's not it's not like detrimental it's just suddenly everything blends together if it's not thought through properly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What was the strategy? Was it just a spray? I think it plays different levels. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: there's actually a few examples of some apps that are doing a really good job of uh, innovating new ways to design for colorblindness. And the first one that I like to point to, especially for the monochrome piece, is Google Maps. A lot of people, when I, when I start to say, you should be designing in monochrome, they say, that's a difficult thing to do. And I thought that as well until I started forcing myself to design in monochrome. And I'm, I'm talking beyond the wireframes now. I, when I pull in full visual designs, I will actually design first in monochrome, and then adding color is something that we'll do later. right? But just establishing that strong structure, that's something that can get increasingly difficult to do. Google Maps actually has a monochrome version right. for people with colorblindness or for uh, me to show to designers <laughs> that say that they can't design in monochrome. If there were ever something that's difficult to design and ba- essentially black, white, and shades of gray, right. it's a map and a GPS system right. because they're completely unpredictable. And there is also a, a high level of stress and reliance from the user on the app. You know, if I'm driving down the road, right. I need to be able to, to understand really quickly what's happening in that interface. Right. Where am I supposed to go? What's
1: nice about something like uh, Google Maps, and especially so in the context of like stress, like the navigation piece, right? Mm-hmm. is luckily they uh, try to attack it from a couple of different mediums. Like a modern GPS system is not only visual, but it's auditory. So mm-hmm. you know, Google has gotten good enough. I actually love this. And I won't use Waze or any of the other competitors, because Google has gotten so good at their audio uh, directions mm-hmm. that I don't have to look at the map to know where I'm going mm-hmm. even if it's complicated like they figured out uh, the bet they'll, they'll go as granular as street signs and lanes and all sorts of mm-hmm. things that you can see um, however like this doesn't this is not uh, something that is gonna work for somebody who's both like deaf and colorblind like you know then you're basically relying on the visual piece mm-hmm. um, and that's a whole different story
2: yeah yep some additional tips uh, we mentioned using contextual links for screen readers. I think that's just something to quickly reiterate is instead of saying click here or more, say something like click here for the full article on SEO. To go along with this, providing text alternatives for non-text content. Right. So, and like At one angle, you're taking your text and you're improving the quality. Non-text content being like
1: pictures, right?
2: Non-text content would be video, audio, pictures. Providing transcripts for media that uh, wouldn't naturally be able to be interpreted by a screen recorder. And also, taking it to a little bit of an extreme, but a lot of websites do this, providing a text-only version of your website. Right. So that's a little extreme, but what it forces you to do is make sure that everything is properly labeled, mm-hmm. and also get a little bit of a lay of the land for like how much multimedia am I using right. that's going to fall apart with my uh, audience that may be accessing this through an assistive device. I think
1: the great thing about a text-only website, too, is it's kind of like developing in monochrome, right? You get to read all of the content. If it's like like a 100% conversion from like uh, full website to text, and you take all the text that's on your, you know, your full version and boil it down, uh, you get to see how does it read out how how many times am I reiterating on certain things? Like what what can I what can I take out? And you might even mm-hmm. be able to find that as you as you take it out of the text only version, you might be able to take it out of the, out the, the full the, version the as well. Version.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And something that's really tricky to do also is like you might say, Well, I have a really complicated app. How do I just do text only? There are some really complicated apps out there that do text only and mm-hmm. don't have any JavaScript at all. And that's a big part of it also is that like, yeah, just not just omitting your images and your multimedia and your CSS for styling, but also can you serve a non-JavaScript version of your app? Go If you go to Gmail with JavaScript disabled, they'll give you a plain text version of your inbox. Yeah,
1: like, so there's a big difference between, say, apps and a website, right? Sure. It's much easier to do an informational or a marketing mm-hmm. uh, or maybe a blog type of website in, you know, no JavaScript or text only. And then it's hard to wrap your head around something that is very... Uh, Interactive, right? Inherently, your product is not going to work the same way. The user Mm -hmm. experience is going to be completely different. However, you can't you can't uh, start to panic when you see that because your user experience is for a very particular cohort of people.
0: I think if you're following the ideologies of progressive enhancement, I think you're all set there. You know, Mm -hmm. and like the the main reason why I I speak specifically to not uh, to, to having a workable version of your site or your app, whatever it may be, without JavaScript working is that screen readers. Don't know how to handle JavaScript in order to serve yeah. the content, right?
2: And conveniently, mm-hmm. uh, search engine bots also yes. generally do not parse JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the sort of residual benefits that you'll see when you start to do this type of stuff. Is for example, making sure that you use minimal to no JavaScript in your menus can be huge for screen recorder or screen readers, but also for SEO. And thinking about this, it's critical for a screen reader because that's how the user is going to navigate your site or your app or whatever it may be. But it's also critical for SEO because that's where your global links are going to be. And that's where the bot is going to say, "Okay, these are the pages that are most important to this site. This is what I'm going to associate most with this domain and put at the highest place. So the the search engines and screen readers can't generally parse JavaScript. If you have elements that are only displaying on hover, those are also going to be hidden uh, to, those, to those bots and those devices. Right. Not um, to
1: mention, uh, if somebody's not using a mouse or you know, a touch you know what I mean? Yep. Like keyboard navigation only. Hover goes away. That yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yep.
2: Exactly. Um, so uh, when when we were developing our navigation and footer for HubSpot.com and I was designing it and everything, one of the requirements that I worked with with the developer from the very start was that all of our interactive dropdown sort of elements have to be coded exclusively in CSS. Right, right? Mm-hmm. And we did it. It was fine, everything's good. And we're we're able to house all of those links with the interaction, that's what we wanted, but we're also, uh, we have uh, a design that's accessible to screen readers and also is being parsed by the search engines, which for a lot of companies, especially in the case of the footer, that's kind of like where your global link dump is, if you will. That's definitely Mm -hmm. something that we've done. Uh, If we had coded those in JavaScript, there'd be no point in even having those links in the footer in the first place.
0: Have we mentioned yet the the tab tip?
2: Yeah, so that was was the next thing that I want to talk about, is making sure that you use tab indexes. So uh, this is basically, you have a tab key on your keyboard. A lot of people press the tab key in order to, um, to, to navigate, the, when, when, especially when they're vision impaired, between the different elements. And then the, the screen reader will read that off to
1: them. It's like anything that has a hover state or can be selected would be, right?
2: Yeah. So this is, this is really important in uh, forms. So so making sure that people can tab through your forms, that's like a total design standard now. That's not even an accessibility thing anymore. And then actually just having solid page hierarchy is going to solve for this in general. And to speak to the importance of this just a little bit, I, uh, last week I was speaking in Poland and uh, one of the designers that came up to me after the talk was, uh, he, w- he was working as a contractor for the Polish government, and basically like their, their form of the IRS. So like the, the entity that collects all of the taxes and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And they had this system that was 15 years old that all of the people in the company would, uh, or in the, in the government organization would use in order to take essentially paper forms and digitize them. Like people, people would come to the IRS office, fill out a paper form, and then they would digitize it. Like the the employees would digitize it in the um, in the office, yeah. right? And this is we could go on a, a completely different tangent with this about yeah. different uh, technologies and the adoption rate. Uh, you know, like this is something I mean, that
1: this was just data entry, right? When it you was say data digitize. Entry. Digitize makes it sound like. Tron level cool. Like, they come in and they digitize it. They, like, shoot it with a gun and it, like, sucks into the computer. You know what I mean? Nah, they just punch it into a form manually with their hands. Yes, that's that's essentially what
2: they're doing. And so the system was 15 years old, whatever. They redesigned the whole thing. And they launched it, and what they saw was that error rates went up, usage went down. Employees were were complaining. They're like, like these people are literally going to leave their cushy government jobs yeah. over this, right? And they're like, what the hell? Like, what did we do wrong with this design? Uh, you know, it's it's so much it's so much more user friendly. It's so much better looking. Um, like they, you know, they even had issues in the previous system with like. Uh, text sizes and contrast and stuff like that, and they made everything really readable in the new one. it was way better. And what they found out was that, yes, they had followed all of the the good modern design standards in creating the new system, but they hadn't actually sat down with one of the uh, administrative people to to observe them using, the software itself, but had they done that, they would have seen that the people using that software would tab between the form fields. They would quickly enter uh, the name, and then they would hit tab, quickly enter the last name. Uh, And they would keep doing that, right? And then they actually, when they were designing the forms for the new system, they didn't incorporate tab functionality. And thus, all of these additional problems happened, right? right?
1: They have to keep leaving, their hands have to keep coming off the keyboard to select a new field, I Mm -hmm. imagine,
0: right? Exactly. These people weren't even
2: using the mouse.
0: (laughs) What a great example for why you just can't follow any checklists of of like what are the best yeah. practices. You know, mm-hmm. every audience yeah. is
1: unique. And that's 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 wider than accessibility, oh, right? Totally. That's just mm-hmm.
0: general. Like, but that just hits at home. So user yeah. testing.
2: To go with tab indexes, yeah. making sure that you also incorporate alt attributes right. into. Your images, your links, whatever it is right. that this you're goes into
1: text only again, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yep. So an alt attribute would be like if if you, um, it's just the alt tag in HTML. Or if you're like hovering over a link, or if you hover over an image, sometimes you see that little sort of caption appear to the side of your mouse. That's not just for you as a user to look at. Actually, that's rooted in several different things. Uh, the first of which is that assistive technologies like screen readers are going to use that alt text and they're gonna read it aloud to the user. So if there's an image, the screen recorder or the screen reader. Twice cannot, now.
1: You said that twice already. I
2: know. It's it's because I talk about user testing so much. And, yeah. Um, the the screen reader cannot like look at an image and say, oh, I know what that is. Although there are technologies soon. being developed Very to do that. Very soon. Yeah. However, we do not have that. So right now, we need to label our our uh, our media. Right.
0: I, I hope we put a filter on. Batman voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was
1: sorry. I'm I'm. Uh, <laughs> Real quick, I was up in Maine over the yeah, weekend. Just Jeff, actually on and We played a right game now. where there was a rule where everybody had to speak in Batman voice for like a full 20 minutes. It was the <laughs> funniest thing. I love Batman voice so much. <laughs> We'll do a whole episode in Batman Voice, <laughs> sure. maybe the next one. Anyway, sorry, please continue. Jeff,
2: you get to edit that episode. That's <laughs> I'm
1: so excited.
2: <laughs> <laughs> OK, so the, the screen readers, they're going to take the alt text, which is the description that you give to the image, and they're going to read it aloud to the user and say, hey, this is an image of a dog. right?" right. Um, and then that alt text is actually going to be displayed instead in place of images, Uh, when users have a slow internet connection or they're using a text-only browser. So so say that for some reason the image can't load, it's going to display the alt text, right? right? And then search engines are going to use that alt text to store information about the page, as they cannot read the content of the images just like the screen reader can. So if you ever go on Google Images and you search for an image, there's a lot of contextual things that go into that. But actually, one of the primary factors in what determines which images are going to be popping up and populating that search is the alt text. So building something that's more accessible for screen readers is also going to help your images rank better in search.
0: And with that, uh, no one to use an image, and no one to use a CSS background. You know, and that that's mm-hmm. kind of like tangential, just to like some using semantic elements again. You know, it's like the same idea of like, if you have a link to something, don't use a span tag and then use JavaScript to like add an uh, on-click event handler. Mm-hmm. Same thing there, like if you have an image that's part of the content, don't make it a CSS background. Right. Make it searchable, make it accessible.
2: Mm-hmm. Building off of that, mm-hmm. when you have Pictures that have text inside of them, and it's actually part of the picture. Making sure that you call that out in a caption, or that you actually reevaluate the way that you're building those pictures, and that you instead separate the background of the picture and then Code the text on as actual HTML right. on top of it is really important. So, a uh, practical application for this would be if you think of listicle blog posts, for mm-hmm. example, um, where like the, you, you know, like a post like the top 10, 15 business quotes, you right. know, and you go to the post and you'll see a bunch of um, like landscape background images, right? Like, you know, you'll have like a picture of of a landscape and then on top of it, there's like an inspiring quote. And that's like the first quote and then under it, there's another different landscape and an inspiring quote on top of it. Those are usually built in like Photoshop or Pablo by uh, Buffer or Canvas for, Canva, I'm sorry. these like really you know relatively basic image editing tools where you're just taking an image and then you're putting text on top of it in the image editor right that is parsed on the internet as just an image. Exactly. It's that text is not going to be interpreted by a screen reader, even though you put that text in there. So how do so, you?
1: So what uh, somebody with a screen reader is really getting is like 25 pictures of landscapes, and they don't actually <laughs> get any of the quotes that go along with it. Right. Yeah. So
2: so what we see uh, a lot of you know big blogs doing today. And this is something we do at HubSpot. BuzzFeed does it. Whatever, take your pick. Um, is that they will have. They're still going to have, you know, the image with the text in it because that's the easiest thing for their content creators to make. But then they have a caption that's under it that describes the image and the quote, and then they also have alt text. The best uh, versions of these are are the ones where they're actually putting in the time though to to just load the background image as an image and then to code the quote or the text on top of right. the image.
1: And that way Text only includes the quotes exactly. also you get a neat bonus for people who aren't looking at the text only version, which is you can do the cool parallax thing too, so like the mm, image and the text mm-hmm. don't have to actually be like connected to each other. You can
2: treat them as different layers, yeah exactly yeah mm-hmm.
1: uh, that's uh, copyrighted an idea, so um, <laughs> it's not free. contact me if you're going to do that. parallax by
2: Jeff do you guys have anything else that you think are some high level tips that we should go over, or should we? dig into some tools.
0: Uh, I want to hammer real quick again on just the importance of being able to tab through your site. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, the one of the, like, simplest things that you can do just to, like, know how accessible your site is, just go to it. And if you hit the tab key, is it going to jump to the proper navigation items in the correct order? Yeah. Right? And so if you order your HTML properly, if you use semantic elements, the elements that you're supposed to use, you get all that for free. And everything will just work, and inherently, your site will be very, very usable for just about any medium. Yep.
1: Uh, also, uh, I want to say that I think that our opening piece—we always put a little blurb in the front before the intro music of our podcast. I think it should be one of the number one ways to te- check if your site is accessible—is just go to it and just <laughs> cut it right there. <laughs> I thought you were going to end it right there. It was really funny. Sorry, <laughs> um, Yeah, we should dig into the tools. I think.
2: Yeah. yeah. So actually, I have the perfect tool for you, Matt. Sure. This is. Um, this is just like, especially with accessibility, a great way to, as Matt mentioned, to test your site for accessibility is to go and use the actual assistive technologies, or to uh, test the the text-only version, or t- to do the actual, take the actual actions that you would expect your audience to take when they're trying to use your accessible uh, elements on the site, right? So there's actually a tool that can help you do this, and it's called totally, but that is with two ones. So the the abbreviation for accessibility is A11Y, Uh, and this tool is called Totally, and it's spelled T-O-T-A-1-1-Y. And basically, what this tool does is it helps you visualize how your site performs with assistive technologies. You can go to your site, turn on a bunch of these different uh, technologies, and see how much it breaks your your site or your product or or whatever it is, right? Uh, So that's a really cool tool. We'll link to that in the description. It's like
1: if you guys are familiar with browser stack. Kind of the same yeah. idea for browser a yeah yeah
2: yeah so browser stack uh, just if you're not familiar with it, that's a tool that will actually run. Live browsers on remote machines that will allow you to see what your design looks like in different browsers, even like Yandex and and stuff like that. Exactly. Take your browser live on a machine and and see what it looks like in Chrome versus IE versus uh, Firefox. Along the same
1: lines as accessibility, uh, we should run the numbers on how much you're missing out if you don't develop sites that are Yandex compatible, because I think that's a very large audience that we're in every country.
2: I don't know about that one. i, I
1: give right. yeah, it a shot.
2: <laughs> it's, it's, a very, it's, it's less than 1% of the we, people that uh, have accessed cool. HubSpot.com. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we should talk about browser fragmentation at some point. Maybe in a future episode. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. yeah. not this one. Okay.
2: okay, digging into other tools. Let's say that you don't have a live site yet, hmm. but you still want to design with accessibility in mind. So you need a tool that's going to run on the desktop, and that's going to actually turn on these accessibility features while you're using Sketch or Photoshop or uh, Axure. And a great tool to do this is called Sim Daltonism. S I M D A L T O N I S M. We'll also link to this one in the description. This is a Mac app, so uh, you, you would need to have a, a Macintosh computer in order to do this. But basically, what it does is it's a colorblindness simulator. And you can turn this thing on, and it will turn your entire screen. Into what it would look like for somebody with, for example, red green color blindness, yellow blue color blindness, take your pick. They have all of the different uh, types of color blindness that you can choose from. And uh, you can actually sit there in Photoshop and design uh, with the color blindness being simulated. Yeah. So you can see what it's like before you even start to deliver yeah. designs.
1: Coincidentally, uh, Sim Daltonism was also a fine art movement, everything was gray.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I made that up. I have no idea. It would be yeah. funny though, like an exhibit at the MFA. <laughs> Sim Daltonism.
2: <laughs> so, uh, okay, so there's a, there's a couple. Of <laughs> 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 Jeff I'm, just over, just I know. Derail-
1: I, I'm not going to talk anymore for the rest <laughs> of this podcast. I think. I'm like my jokes are landing like eight minutes later. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so those are a couple really good tools that you can use. Uh, there's also some solid uh, resources that entities like the. Uh, World Wide Web Consortium have put together. So two in particular. The Web Accessibility Evaluation Tools List by the W3C has a bunch of tools like the ones that I just mentioned going into really, really niche things that we wouldn't necessarily cover here today. But if you want to test for a specific type of accessibility, there's probably a tool out there to do it. And this list is going to help you find that. We'll link to that. Uh, and then the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines uh, established by the W3C are uh, some some really great just general guidelines that, that you can adhere to when you're writing code, when you're creating a design. They're similar to uh, what you see out of Section 508 from the U.S. government. And if you want to dig into that, you can go to the W3C. If you want to dig into more of the section of 508 type of stuff, you can go to usability.gov. It's a beautiful website. Something that our government can actually be proud of yeah. on the web. <laughs> oh, um, no. And it goes into it goes into all all of these great usability standards. Would be funny if this was
0: the last episode, last anyone ever heard from us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just, Some,
1: somebody's pissed. Yeah, like props to usability.gov for being usable. Right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. not Mm-hmm. Like, of all the government sites, you're like, man, I wish they applied this to everything else that they do.
2: Yeah. yeah. Also, built into your Mac operating system, Mac OS X, is something called Accessibility Inspector. And so if you are, this is something that's on every Mac. You can uh, search for it right now on your launch pad. Mm-hmm. If you are designing a uh, an app that is going to be based on a Mac operating system, this thing is built for testing your app for accessibility. So that's a cool thing. Um, there's something called Ax AXE. Yep. Jeff, you know a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a Chrome plugin-. I mm-hmm. believe. And that um, is a screen reader, as far as I remember. I actually mm-hmm. don't know that much about it. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's a Chrome plugin. Uh, let me double check that, and I'll, yeah.
2: I'll come right back. So there's some there are, to go off oh, of that, there are I some just, really cool. I just Googled Axe
1: with no other context. And let me tell you, that is not like a list of uh, screen reader tools. That is just a bunch of axes. Uh,
2: <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of really good Chrome plugins, there it is. specifically, that, that you can pull up where um, when you're browsing the web, it can simulate these things. There's actually something called the web accessibility toolbar, Mm -hmm. um, which we'll we'll sort of dive into a lot of that stuff. So a lot of different tools uh, that you can pull together to test in real time, in the browser, uh, on your machine, whatever you want to pick um, to make sure that you're actually adhering to this stuff.
1: Back to Axe for a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two things. One, what it does is it analyzes your page like an SEO analyzer. And it picks out a whole bunch of things that are not compatible uh, Mm -hmm. accessibility-wise. So it doesn't really do like a live test so much as an analysis. Um, And second, great tagline, uh, drop the axe on your accessibility defects, where they take (laughs) their own name and they turn it into a pun. Very good. I like that a lot.
2: (laughs) If you want some additional examples of some good accessible design, some things that I've just run across personally, um, if you use Trello, they have a colorblind mode. Turn it on, it actually doesn't degrade your experience. Uh, and basically, what it does is, um, in Trello, there are color-based tags for, for cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so like your one card could be blue, another could be red, and this is related to you know whatever it is that you set the label to in the product cycle. It's important to be able to distinguish between those, but if they're just colors, it's difficult. So if you turn on colorblind mode, they apply patterns. To right. the colors. So you may not be able to distinguish the color, but you can distinguish the pattern. This is just a good accessibility uh, practice in general, is like for colorblindness. If you can't, if you got to use too many colors or if you can't crack the code on the colors, applying patterns as a fallback right. for a colorblind mode is really smart.
0: There's ba- also. Basically, if your design hinges on the colors yeah. to be usable, mm-hmm. you need something like that.
2: Yep. There's also an app called Two Dots, it's a game that is completely color-based, which is basically what Matt just mentioned. And you just select different dots and stuff like this. And you need to be able to distinguish between which dot is which. And the way that you do that in the standard app is through color. If you're colorblind, obviously, you're not going to be able to do that. So you turn on colorblind mode, and it applies icons to the dots. So now there's visual cues that are not dependent on color on each dot, so you know which one is which. Mm
1: -hmm. Super smart.
2: Some cool stuff to look into. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So some takeaways for us here. Yeah. Accessibility and the uh, disabled audience is huge. Right. They're accessing your products. They're larger than that of entire internet accessing nations just based in the United States. God forbid you scale that to the entire world. Right. Right? Um, the process of introducing accessibility into your design is best done at the beginning because it's not expensive. Contrary to popular belief, it's not difficult. We just went through some really, really straightforward tips. And these are actually core to accessibility. It's not right. like stuff gets super, super, super complicated after this. Uh, and it's actually exceedingly difficult to, uh, to do the older your product gets, right. right? That's
1: probably where the expensive myth comes from.
2: It, yes, exactly. Right. Is that people people are adopting accessibility practices too late, and then it does get expensive because you have to redo your infrastructure. Exactly. But beyond that, the added benefits that it gives in terms of good design practices, SEO, creating something that's going to actually benefit your entire audience are huge, and they're measurable. Um, There are some really good tools that you can use to do this stuff, some uh, great resources that we'll be putting in the description. I think that this is important stuff, and that especially for businesses as they're considering not just the ethics of, of how they operate, which there are a lot of ethics. And ethical obligations involved in accessibility, but also in their growth strategy mm-hmm. and how they uh, think they're going to reach a larger audience. Where is accessibility going to, to play in, into that? And I think that. It's actually something that's central to that entire process, and if you look okay. at some of the world's sm- smartest companies, they may not be talking about it, but they already realize yeah. that.
1: As you said, accessibility and globalization should be exactly the same amount of yeah. priority.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think something that, uh, I don't know if we mentioned in this episode, but you talked about it before when we were talking, and that kind of like wraps up how important this is. I think there was some some treaty or some political document that was drafted up where they defined access to the entire population to online information as a human right yeah yes
2: yeah so uh, this is something that I believe uh, I heard about when I this last time that I was in Brazil mm-hmm. um, they're really big on human rights and everything like that there and the, and this is I believe that this is something that's happening as, as a big push for them is like and obviously Mark Zuckerberg seems to think the same thing um, so the point there being that as the internet accessing population grows and as it becomes more of a human right, accessibility holds even more mm-hmm. a level of importance. Right. And I think that we're going to see, honestly, more and more legislation pointed at accessibility. Exactly. Because as Section 508 evolves in the United States, as we see legislation start to bleed into the web, agree with it or not, in the European Union uh, around cookies, around. Uh, things like I'm working on an internationalization project for our site right now and we have to uh, we have like legal requirements for the EU where if people call us we have to tell them how much it's going to cost them to call us and a text label right next to the phone number. There's a lot of these things that, that are that are popping up. And I think that we will continue to see accessibility mandated in the same way that in a brick and mortar location, uh, it's the law that you have a ramp to allow right. wheelchair accessibility uh, into your, your building. You're going to need a ramp to allow accessibility into your website exactly. and your product as so well.
1: So if anything else, I think what we're trying to say is uh, Focus on accessibility now, so you don't get sued in the future.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If that's the only argument, if we've exhausted all of our other arguments to... Save money. Focus on accessibility. accessibility.
0: (laughs) Can't wait for accessibility lawyers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They probably already already exist. Anyway, we're running out of time, so I think we should wrap this guy up. Um, if you have any questions or burning concerns or things that we, uh, things you know questions on things we didn't cover perhaps or you know there, if we there's were, a lot of things if, we didn't cover yeah, yeah. If, we, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to talk about something or if we got something wrong and you feel like correcting us, anything you want really, we have an email address. It's hello at UXandgrowth.com. and uh, check the links uh, underneath this podcast episode for uh, all of the things that we mentioned. Uh, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day.
0: mm mm-hmm.